what a blessing it is to open up the Word of God and to encourage one another. And I've been encouraged already uh, this week, this weekend, in tremendous ways, and appreciate uh, not only the invitation, but all the things that have already been shared uh, from the Word of God. Uh, James is such a powerful epistle. Martin Luther called it an epistle of straw, but I disagree uh, because it offers for us what one of my teachers years ago at Fried Hardeman called a glimpse into Monday through Saturday religion. I would hope that it would also apply on Sunday. Uh, I know that a lot of people, perhaps like me, want to sort of think about how James might apply since it's such a well-applied letter as we consider how we ought to treat each other, how we ought to treat the poor, how we ought to not show partiality, how our faith ought to be demonstrated by works, how we ought to care for those who are most vulnerable among us. But I think it's important that we sort of go back and make note of the fact that we're not the first to have read the epistle of James. That years ago, one of the Lord's brothers, remember that list that you see in Matthew 13, 55, or in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, at least two sisters, those younger siblings of Jesus, Remember how when Jesus was making plans to go to the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7, how his brothers encouraged him to go? And in verse 5 of John 7, we're told that the reason they wanted him to go was because they didn't believe in his claims. But something changed. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, we see that there in that powerful moment where his mother and several disciples were gathered, Jesus' brothers were there likely after the resurrection, and even though James doesn't mention being the brother of Jesus, Jude mentions being the brother of James, which is sort of unique. Uh, we know some things about James. We know how powerful a leader he was, how the Apostle Paul describes him as one of those pillars of the church in Galatians, how he was outstanding among the apostles, how in Acts 15 he plays a role in helping by God's guidance to settle dispute over unity between Jews and Gentiles. And so as we think about this letter, I don't want to get lost in the historical context of the point that we can't really make an application, but we're not the first to have read the epistle of James. And so James begins by addressing this letter as one of the general epistles, unlike Paul, who always sort of moves towards application, right? Remember in Romans 12, 1, therefore, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before God. Or in Ephesians 4, verse 1, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Paul always seems to move from that depth of theology rooted in the character and activity of God towards application. And James just hits the ground running with application. And perhaps that's in part because he's addressing this to a group of Christians who are struggling. And although we don't know a lot about this audience, we know some things. For example, how he says at the very beginning, James to, uh, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad greetings and how these Christians were apparently experiencing all kinds of trials, but it wasn't the trials from without that were necessarily causing them to struggle. It's some of the things that were dividing them within. And as Brother Dan and Brother Garrett have reminded us of this morning, the way unfortunately they were treating one another and treating those in that context who were most vulnerable and most in need of seeing the love of God. But I want to begin not by spending all of our time in the context of that first century setting, but by asking, when you see the word respond, what comes to mind? I love preaching. 
Now, don't get me wrong, I, I love being a Greek teacher. I guess that makes me a nerd, and, and I love a lot of other things about life, but, but there's no greater work than preaching the gospel. And one of the things I love about preaching is how the word persuades and convicts, and how we traditionally, at the end of a lesson, will extend the invitation, the Lord's invitation, and invite people to respond publicly to that word. I think there are perhaps a lot of people, when they see the word respond, that's what comes to mind. And they might think that a lesson on how to respond to God's word would be sort of a lesson on how you walk down the aisle, how you go to whoever it is standing down front. At Estes, not only do we do that, but we have a couple of elders every week that are also there in the conference room. And after almost every service, there are people who pray with them and talk with them about their concerns. Is that what this lesson is primarily about? Uh, no. Unfortunately, I think that it's true that a lot of people perhaps have become so accustomed to thinking about something that I love and care deeply about, extending the invitation at the end of the lesson, that that might be their first thought. And yet this is a text, building on what's been said in the first 18 verses of James 1, that invites everyone to respond every time we encounter God's greatest gift, the Word incarnate and the Word made clear in His revealed will in Scripture. You know, it's interesting to look at what's being said here and to think about how inclusive this is. In the text of James chapter 1, just in verses 19 through 27, if somebody perhaps this morning is thinking, well, I'm thankful that this response to the Word of God is primarily intended for leaders in the church, maybe those who hold the office of elder or deacon, maybe evangelist, maybe this is a lesson that's just for those who are spiritually mature, maybe it's just for a, a, a certain gender, maybe the men. But notice as we read through this text, this is truly something that is intended to be applied to everyone reading this letter. Look at verse 19, the very first verse in our passage this morning. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Look at verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious, Contextually, what James has been saying from the very beginning of this letter is not just for those who are materially well-off. It's not just for those who are spiritually mature. It's not just for those who've been blessed with the ability to serve as a leader in the Lord's church. It's for every Christian to recognize what it is that God has done and how he has revealed his will to us. I want to back up for a moment and just notice, and perhaps in a post-Genesis 3 reality, we should assume this, but even in a letter like James that invites us to have joy, that invites us to pray, that invites us to respond to trial by counting our blessings rather than counting our failures, have we made note of the fact how in James chapter 1, up to verse 19, there are so many things here that have already given us the impression that things are not as they should be. We read about these various trials, verse 2 and verse 13, verse 12 rather. We read here about faith being tested. Why is faith being tested? Because we're in a context where suffering is real, where hardship and, and, and the lack of justice, these things are realities. And so as we continue in this context, there's a possibility that we're going to lack wisdom and not know how we should respond to these trials. I think there's a lot said, as Brother Dan pointed out earlier today, about poverty 
and how we respond to injustice and disparity among Christians. That's evident in verse 9. Some are of humble circumstances and others perhaps glory in, in, in the material wealth they've been blessed with. There's this problem of materialism, which is alive and well in our culture, amen. The way that sometimes we allow our blessings in this life to distract us from the things that Paul describes in Colossians 3 verses 1 and 2 that we ought to focus on because they are the things from above. And then there's temptation. And not that temptation is implicitly wrong, but it can easily dissuade us. It's something that can distract us from the things that are most important. And so contextually, by the time we get to this message about responding to the word of God, we've seen in James's day, and the Lord knows in our day, there are lots of things that can take our attention away from the good things that God has done, away from the way that he's responded despite our failure and sin that post-Genesis 3 reality. And while I wish we could take the time this morning to go through all five chapters, and that would step on a lot of other people's material and not be a very nice thing to do, perhaps one verse, James 4, verse 4. I don't know if this is the way you're going to want to win friends and influence people, but James is pretty direct here, isn't he? When he addressed these readers as adulteresses, why does he do that? Well, because I think they're in the midst of a real struggle between the things that are of God, that come from the giver of every good and perfect gift, and the things that are from below that can easily dissuade them and distract them. He says, don't you know, don't you know that friendship with the world creates enmity, division, hardship, a rendering of a relationship to not be what it could be. And the reason for that is not because that's God's intent. Remember what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, right before he describes how there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, how in verse 4 he says, God desires that all people everywhere repent and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's what God wants. The problem is sometimes God's people don't reflect that in what we say or in how we treat others. James says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Don't you know that being distracted, taking your eyes off of the things that matter the most can be harmful to the cause, can distract us from our mission, can cause us to abuse other people and take for granted the things that God has done for us? It's amazing, really. When I got this passage, I just couldn't help but celebrate because I think whoever designed the topic and looked at the text for this particular session, gave great attention to the key word in James 1, 19 through 27. And that key word is word. Notice how many times the word gets referred to in this section of James 1. How from the very beginning, we see this reality that we, everyone, right? This is all inclusive. We should receive the word implanted. And perhaps the most important phrase in this whole stretch is at the end of verse 21. What is that implanted word able to do? It's able to save your souls. It's able to make a difference that touches eternity. And the reason for that is not because I love talking about the history of the Bible and thinking about the, the 40 men who who penned these words by inspiration, thinking about how the scriptures were recognized as canonical and, and passed down faithfully and, and translated. But, but notice that this isn't the story of the Bible in terms of what people did. This is the story of what God has done 
and how he has offered us a word by his loving kindness and mercy. He initiated that communication. He invites us to read it, to receive it, but not just to do navel-gazing as we do receive that word. One time I was uh, listening to a speaker who blew me away. I was watching him carefully and looking for an earpiece. I was looking for cue cards in the back of the auditorium because this this brother got up there and he started quoting the Gospel of Matthew, which got my attention right away because you know how Matthew starts. He nailed the genealogy. And, and what happened was after about 35 minutes of him quoting the Gospel of Matthew, I think he was somewhere in Matthew 18, the bell rang. I thought, I've, I've never seen someone do that. I want to be like that guy. He seems to have received the word. Now, I don't want to discourage us with the rest of the story, but, but a few weeks later, I remember this because I was a teenager and it made, it made an impression on me. That same guy who quoted almost two-thirds of the Gospel of Matthew walked out on his family and left the faith. And so it seems to me that we could, I mean, even Satan can quote Scripture, right? We can excel in facts. We can commit scripture to memory. We can know how to answer the questions to make a positive impression. But what's described here in verse 21 as receiving the implanted word, which speaks to God's activity. Look at verse 22. We don't just hear it. We act on it. We're doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And, and he talks here in this illustration that we'll come back to in a few minutes about the mirror because we don't just see it, we don't just read it, we don't just memorize it, we don't just preach it, we don't just talk about it, we put that into action. Remember what Jesus says? We'll talk more tomorrow, Lord willing, about the parallels between James and the Sermon on the Mount. But remember Jesus' words in Luke 11, verse 28, when he says, if anyone is a, not only a hearer of the word, but acts on it, what, what's the result of that? He's blessed. James says, you can't just hear it. It's the greatest gift other than the Son of God incarnate man has ever received. You receive it, you act on it, you do it. And I think parallel to this in verse 25 is that perfect law of liberty that we gaze into. And because we see God in that law, because we see God in that word, what happens? We're changed. We're made different. Now the most quoted verse in James 1 we could perhaps dispute which verse this is, but it seems to me that the most quoted verse in James 1 is verse 17. And that picture of God's generosity. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And, and as James uses nature illustrations and practical pictures of what that means in this context, I, I must confess that I'm guilty of stopping reading that in verse 17, maybe even in the first half of verse 17 and, and missing how that statement continues. Now, I want to preach Christ and I want to acknowledge what Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 9 where he's talking about giving and he doesn't give us a percentage. Instead, he talks about the principle of giving as God first gave to us. And remember what Paul says there about Jesus Christ when he says in that moment that doxology, that outburst of praise, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He's talking about Jesus. But notice how consistent that gift is with the gift that's described here in verse 18. 
What's the greatest gift in this context? Yes, God, verse 17, is the giver of every good and perfect gift, but, but what's the greatest gift? In the exercise of his will, verse 18, he brought us forth the word of truth with the result that, so that we would be a kind of first fruits. Those who offered sacrifices in Jerusalem would have certainly understood that first fruits imagery all the way back in the Pentateuch, pictures of how we offer the very first, the very best to God. What's the result of what it is that God's implanted, that God's given by his graciousness and mercy? We respond to that word so that not only are we blessed by the implanted word, but verse 18 says that we're a kind of first fruits among his creatures so the whole world will know in the midst of division and hopelessness and injustice that God is awake and he's attentive and that his will is best and that if we allow ourselves rather than being conformed to this world to be transformed by the renewing of our mind it will touch eternity and it will change our very nature so how do we respond to the word if this isn't a lesson about walking down the aisle, if this is a lesson about encountering the word that God has revealed and being changed by it, let's follow the text and look for three key words, three key attitudes that mark the Christian. First, we start with humility. We receive the word with humility. We have a posture that is willing to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and receive what it is he has revealed. Notice as we began reading in our text for this morning, in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, what the text says. If you have the King James, it begins with wherefore. A lot of other translations begin with you know. The whole point here is to draw a connection back to what it is that God has offered in his word, in the word of truth that has been revealed. So as James affectionately speaks to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, as Iacobos addresses that audience, he says, You know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in or with humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. It's interesting how many people struggle with the way that verse 19 begins. And perhaps this would be the most quoted verse. I think you could make the case that a lot of Christians, a lot of people perhaps even in the world have heard this phraseology, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. But how does that connect to the context of the word that's being spoken of here? It seems that a lot of commentaries, including some that are very well written, would argue that what we have here is James sort of taking an aside and, and maybe chasing a rabbit for a moment. And then he sort of comes back in verse 20 to maybe get back to the word. And so are 19 and 20 a personal aside that are disconnected from what it is that is being said about the word in this context? Well, I think it's certainly something that someone could argue for based on the context of what's being said here. If we look at these verses, it seems to me that there's a reason why we're talking about hearing in verse 19, we're talking about speaking, and we're talking about a perspective that is slow to anger. 
Perhaps in James's world and perhaps even in our context, it's possible to be too busy speaking to hear the word. In too big a hurry to say what we think needs to be said than to simply give time to hear, to encounter, to read, to study to show ourselves approved, to give attention to the whole counsel of God, to think about that word that is inspired of God and profitable for, for doctrine, reproof, correction, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped. Maybe we're so busy wanting to say something that it's tempting not to listen. Perhaps it's also possible that someone would be so eager to speak the word that we don't really want to take time to study. I remember being with a young man as a Bible major at Fried Hardeman several years ago who was so excited about writing his first book, he couldn't wait. So his senior year, he wrote a, a little book, and I don't want to criticize that. I was excited that he wanted to study the Word, but, but I've made a promise to my father that I would never write anything that would be published before I turned 35. Now, I don't know if that was a rash vow or not, and if you've written before you're 35, all that proves is you're a lot better than I am. But one of the reasons I wanted to do that, wanted to avoid that, was because frequently in our classes we would have situations where we would take something a brother wrote early in his ministry and take something else that was written later and be able to use resources written by that friend, by that person, on both sides of the argument doesn't mean that we can't necessarily change our perspective, but is it possible that there were people in James's context, and maybe even in ours, that not only are too busy talking to hear what it is God has to say, but are in too big a hurry to actually take time to study the Word of God, to hear the Word of God, because there are things we want to say and to do and to write. And maybe if we feel okay with those, it's the last one that we struggle with. How would anger fit into this? Well, in this same book, all of us who teach the Word of God with regularity are very aware of what James chapter 3 and verse 1 has to say. I love teaching the Word of God, but this is a sobering verse. When James says, let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. What's he saying there? We've got to be perfect? I hope not. That's not going to happen to glorification. We've got to have all the answers. I hope not. That's not where I am. I think what he's saying there is, this is serious business. We're handling the word of God. We're talking about matters that go beyond life and death. Things that touch eternity. You think it might frustrate someone who's gotten into ministry because they want their ego stroked? You think it might frustrate someone who's driven by being the big brother in the brotherhood rather than being a humble servant of Jesus, to know that the first step in being a faithful disciple of Jesus is to lay down our lives as living sacrifices and submit to his will so that everything we do in ministry is saying, if you think I'm special, you should know the Savior who paid the debt for me. Woe is me, O wretched man that I am. It's only Jesus Christ who gives us hope. And so contextually, I don't think we have to argue that James takes a, a personal side to talk about attitudes. Perhaps this is what we all struggle with, not just preachers, but students of the word who want to sort of invoke our own perspectives and personalities, 
who go to the text with an, a pre-understanding or overstand the text so that they don't actually allow what's being said in the text to come out clearly because I've already got a great illustration I want to use. I've already got a political conclusion I want to make. I've already got something that I'm just dead set on making sure people hear whether this passage says it or not. Oh, we would never do that. But the text calls us to be submissive and humble. Who gave this gift? Dal Flatt was one of my favorite teachers at Fried Hardeman. And I remember there was a fellow in our class who at 18 was a better preacher than I'll ever be. It seems like he knew all the answers and one time I thought I saw him levitate when he walked in the room. <laughs> he gave an outstanding devotional. And he sat down and you know we're all looking around like He's an all-star. And we all kind of knew it. And by the way, he's doing great in ministry, praise God. But my mentor and friend, Al Flatt, looked around at us and he knew what was happening. And he said, uh, boys, you know I love you, right? Yes, Brother Dow. Well, just remember, the church already has a Savior and none of you are it. He loved us. He helped us. And I think this is a text that calls us back to the reality that it begins with humility. Lord, use me, teach me, help me to submit to your will and see your word so that I might bear the fruit that you desire for me to bear. Notice how we continue. How beginning in verse 22, once we've received that implanted word with humility, what happens next? Starting in verse 22 and reading through verse 25, James reminds us that with integrity, we act on that word. Read with me, if you will. James says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Who gives blessings? Who's given that implanted word? Who desires that we persevere under trial? Who's promised to give wisdom if we ask for it? Who is the one who has already given us opportunity to see that he doesn't tempt, but instead offers us an opportunity to draw near to him because he's revealed the word of truth, this great gift? Who's called upon us to be humble and responsive? As a fellow who enjoys teaching critical introduction to the New Testament, we love talking about mirrors in this text. I get it. Mirrors then might not be like mirrors now. Okay, that's exciting. You know, if we look at this, we might think about how, again, this parallels much of what Jesus says. It's one of those places where I think a really clear connection between Jesus' teaching and James' teaching. Perhaps what we could say about that, you know, people struggle. Why doesn't James talk about being Jesus' brother? Why doesn't he talk about the stories from Jesus' life? Maybe for James it was more important that Jesus be his savior than be his brother. Maybe he's focusing more on sayings than he is on stories. I don't know. There's a lot of parallels here. But what I do know is that this mirror illustration, I think 
causes us to wonder, what are we looking at? It seems that there were a lot of people in James's context who were looking at their own personal interests and depending upon their own strengths. And instead, what these readers were invited to do and what we're invited to do, paralleling the perfect law with all these references to the word, is look at the word. Look at what God has offered as his standard rather than focusing on our own inability or our own privilege or our own blessings. Look to God and don't just glance at it. What does your translation say there? Looked intently, gaze at, meditate on it, spend time with it. Why? So that when we walk away from that, what are the results? Not of just taking a glance. Maybe some of us only want a glance in the mirror. But what we're looking at here is not ourselves. It's what God has revealed. It's what's profitable. That's the rest of 2 Timothy 3. Don't stop in verse 16. It's profitable. It's useful. It's God-breathed. And what we're told here is, because with humility we approach this implanted word, we now with integrity act on that. Once you've seen it, you just, you can't change. I know we don't want to teach perseverance of the saints. I understand the danger of that. But let's not allow the pendulum to swing so far the other way that we avoid once saved, always saved, and start teaching never really sure you're saved. James seems to move on from that and say, especially in 2, 14 through 26, as a result of your faith, as a result of staring at, gazing at, meditating upon the word of liberty, the law of liberty, you are different. And it's not just when you're up in front of people talking. It's when no one else is around, when no one else will know. It's when you're on a business trip. It's when nobody in your family's around. It's when nobody from co the congregation, we've got this code, right? Uh, how are you doing? Well, I'm fine. Whether that's true or not. And if you don't say fine, have you ever noticed the look on someone's face when you tell them, actually, I'm not, oh, I've made a mistake. <laughs> don't they know the way this works? You're just supposed to say fine. Don't tell me how you're really feeling or what the word of God allows us to do is to be made different with humility, with integrity, and finally with charity. We focus a lot on verses 26 and 27 for good reason. There's been a lot of division over these verses through the years, which is heartbreaking because I think sometimes those discussions pull us far away from the intent of what it is that the Spirit is saying through James in the context of James chapter 1. You think you've got this religion thing figured out, right? I talk about this in classes sometimes at Fried Hardeman, like a three-legged stool. I think with uh, distinctiveness, we've done a pretty good job of talking about healthy doctrine, which I believe in. Sound doctrine, healthy teaching. We've done a pretty good job of talking about worship that honors God in spirit and truth. Those are things I care a lot about, but surely the distinctiveness of God's people is not just about what we believe or how we worship, Shouldn't that also include how we treat people? Especially people that can't reciprocate that. They can't return the favor. And if there's ever been a group of people in the context of the poor that would qualify as those who we can't say, I'll scratch your back as long as you scratch my back in return, it'd be the widows and orphans. 
And we spend so much time perhaps talking about how the money is used that we miss what's being said in the context of James 1 where as a result of the humility and the integrity that we're acting with, charity is the necessary result, the first fruit of the Spirit. This is all of us. If anyone, James says, thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, why do those words matter? Well, they're a reflection, as Brother Garrett reminded us in the previous session, of what's going on in your heart. You've got to bridle that tongue. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it can turn a rudder. It can set a whole forest on fire. If you can't bridle your tongue, you deceive your own heart and your religion. James doesn't pull any punches here. He's already called us adulteresses. He says, it's worthless. And if you want to see what a religion that honors God looks like, yeah, your teaching matters and your worship matters. Let's not disparage, let's not underemphasize the importance of those aspects of Christian living as well. But you know what else matters? I saw a guy who was an amazing preacher cuss out an umpire a Little League game. And it ruined his influence. I saw a sister who was an amazing teacher post some things on social media that tore up that congregation. James is talking here about something that's so practical. It's not just our words, it's our actions. Pure and undefiled religion. In whose sight? In the God and Father who gave the gift. This is the result of the implanted word. I care about what God thinks is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. You know how that happens? A response to God's word. You know, confession is a part of our response, right? Romans 10, 9 and 10 to God, when we make it clear that we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. But isn't it also a part of our daily discipleship? It's a part of what we do and how we speak and how we treat others. And what we're called to here is not just a confession, it's a change in the way we are and in who we are and in how we act. It's a change that doesn't desire to take a selfie every time I help somebody and brag about it. It's a change that doesn't have to say, oh, I'm so blessed to be invited to speak so-and-so. Stop the humble bragging. Stop the self-promotion. Stop doing things so that other men may say, oh, what a faithful. Give glory to God. And if we see that word that God's given and we respond with humility, if we allow integrity to be something that's realized in our lives and we live with charity, to God be the glory. His word will yield the results it was intended to yield. And there will be less of self and more of him. How do we respond to the word? <laughs> well, we don't throw spears. We don't return fire. We're not easily provoked. We're humble enough to learn. You know, I, I know we're not in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, and maybe this is a, a bad move for a preacher to reference something random at the end of the lesson, but... I, uh, I don't know how old Timothy was when he got first and second Timothy, but he wasn't a teenager. 
he's been in ministry a while. And I think there might be some people who would get a letter like that and say, hey, uh, Paul, you know how long I've been doing this? You know how good I am at this? You know what people say about me? You know where I've been, what degree I have, where I went to school, what rank I hold? Don't you know who my parents are? Don't you know how big the congregation is I serve? Don't you know how special I am? I don't know how God can be honored with that attitude. When he's given us a word and he's called us to submit. And if we respond to that word, the borders of his kingdom will be expanded. And his name will be honored because it wasn't about me. I don't know how long we'll be blessed with on this world. But if my kids get older and they know that I like a certain kind of music and I was a good baseball coach and I was there at their plays and I helped them to know some things about fishing, but they never heard me talk about Jesus. They, they heard me get up on Sunday and preach one thing and on the car ride home act a different way. God help us because I haven't responded to that word in a way that really resulted in humility, integrity, and charity. I'm thankful for the word of God and how it can change our lives.